Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter, the 46th to the 53rd verse. It's uh, the story of the ascension of the Lord. And of the four Gospels, Luke is the only one that even mentions this in a very specific sort of way as Jesus being taken up to the right hand of the Father. And there's a lot of reasons for that, because we notice that Jesus rises from the dead, that Jesus appears to his disciples, he speaks with his disciples, and then the gospel Gospels come to an end, all except for Luke. And then the story of the sending of the paraclete, which Jesus has been talking about, is picked up in the Acts of the Apostles. And so we see then the transference, but I'm going to send to you the, the paraclete who will you know, teach you everything I said and help you remember and all of that. And so the Gospels then kind of transition gently over, um, gently over into the uh, Acts of the Apostles. And in so doing, we see the continuation of the presence of Jesus in the world through the Spirit, and, uh, and then the story of the development and the growth of the Church. But in Luke, <clears throat> he specifically attempts to answer the question of what happened to Jesus. And, uh, and so we have the story of the resurrection. And he said, and it says there, um, then he, he took them out as far as the outskirts of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And now as he blessed them, he withdrew from them and, were carried, and was carried up to heaven. And they worshipped him and then went back to Jerusalem full of joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. So we have then the story of the ascension from the Gospel of Luke. And, uh, and so we have to ask ourselves exactly what does this mean? Um, there's no reason, again, in any of the Gospel stories, there's no reason to, to question the historicity of what they say. We have, we have no tools to do that with, for one thing. And for another thing, they're, they're witnesses to the Lord, and therefore, you know, they're, they're going to be in some ways protected. So, <clears throat> first of all, I think that we have to look at this, this insight by St. Augustine, who said that when Jesus, when the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the Son, was with the Father, he was also present to us. And that, he is referring to that in the Old Testament, when in fact Jesus himself in the Gospel of John um, uh, um, acknowledges that he is the voice in the burning bush to Moses, then that we find implications that he is also the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and so forth. So his presence is felt among the chosen people. But he primarily then is at the right hand of the Father. In other words, the Trinity is always intact. Then, when Jesus is born, St. Augustine reminds us, and now that he is with us, does not mean that he is not also present to the Father. And we know that in several occasions, Jesus withdraws, goes to the mountains or the hills by himself, and speaks with the Father. So that... This idea that there's this absolute cleavage, absolute separation between Jesus on earth and Jesus in heaven is a fallacy to begin with. And it only can happen 
when we, and, and maybe this is something that lately maybe becomes very important to us and is worth repetition, is that it is a constant reminder then that Jesus is God and as well as being man. And that, in, and that when, we, when we lose sight of that, then we lose sight of the person of Jesus. For he is, in, he is a human, and yet he is a divine person. And so we ask ourselves then a basic, a basic question that, that I think is, is important for us to deal with. Can we say that before Jesus is incarnate, that God lacks something? Because isn't being something added onto being more than one was before? I don't mean to make this an abstract or, or a silly proposition, but it's important because if, in fact, God becomes more through the Incarnation, then he was not perfect before, and he is not God. If, in fact, so how do we say that, then? The humanity is added to the divinity, and we can't say that, because nothing can be added to the divinity, because it's perfect. A divinity is therefore added to humanity. And so... <clears throat> The recipient and the, the, the enhancement is on the human side and not on the divine side. When we realize, therefore, that the human side is capable of receiving divinity, then this whole business of the presence of Jesus in his disciples, the presence of Jesus in the church, all of that becomes much, much more um, clear for us to deal with. For it is not in any way it is not in any way um, the, um, the idea that somehow or other there's a, just this total separation between the natural and the supernatural. The human being is capable of receiving the supernatural into its life and into its existence, into its being. This is not only this, the proclamation of the Incarnation, but it's also the proclamation of the Eucharist. Here we are, human beings, who take into ourselves the body and blood of Jesus Christ, who is God. And so we have God within us. And when we go forth from the Mass, from the Eucharistic celebration, God is with us. So we say, what happened to Jesus after he rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples and returned, in a sense, then to that which was before the Incarnation in his relationship um, with us? He is with the Father, but through the Spirit, which he tells us, is, is with us. And humanity receives, therefore the fullness of the incarnate and divine Son into itself on the Feast of Pentecost, when in fact the Holy Spirit then comes and enters into Mary and the disciples and, uh, and brings with him the gifts that are to be bestowed on the church and on the disciples. I know this might sound complicated, but it's, if we think about it, it's not really complicated. Um, we receive God into our being. That's what it says. So when we say, well, what happened to Jesus? What happened to Jesus after the resurrection and the appearance and so forth? He remains in the world. He remains in the world through his disciples and through the church and in the sacraments. This is the only way that, um, 
this is this is the only way that we can we can look at the Lord and look at his relationship to us without creating an impossible gap, an impossible abyss between between ourselves and him. And behold, his, I'm with you always until the end of the world. So that the work of the church and the work of the disciples within the church is the work of Jesus Christ, and it is his presence in the world. It is not the perfection of the man Jesus, because the humanity which accepts this divinity into itself, which receives this divinity into itself, remains in its humanity also imperfect. And this was not the case with the Christ, with Jesus. So that, you know, and I think I've often mentioned this before in the writings of St. Francis of Assisi, he never, he never refers to Jesus um, separate from the Father and the Spirit except in relationship to the church and the sacraments. So he is aware that the sacraments are part of this receptivity of the human person, of the divine into their life, into their being. We say that it creates indelible marks. We say baptism creates an indelible mark. That means that the substance of the person has changed and is now in, has now received within itself a divine element. Um, and the same way with the indelible marks of confirmation, of ordination, and so forth. There are those others which are not indelible marks, but which transform the person from without, from grace, from the presence of Jesus. And those, of course, are, are the, the, the other sacraments. So basically then, what we do when we celebrate the ascension of the Lord is we're not celebrating Jesus' farewell to us. We're not saying, well, Jesus said goodbye, went back to the Father, and here we are. No. Jesus is here present among us through the Spirit, and we receive him into our personhood whenever we receive the Eucharist. I think that we, we, have, to, we have to grapple with that. Otherwise, Jesus becomes an alien, and, and, and we, we can't do that. The ones who kind of wanted to make him an alien, in, in a way, were the ones who were on this quest for the historical Jesus. And this is an interesting, this is an interesting thing, because there was a movement in the 19th century, and, and actually also in the 18th century, there was this movement that wanted to find the historical Jesus, the real historical Jesus. The whole Jesus seminar thing um, that in, in St. Louis was, was part of that. Let's find out what really happened. But what that does is that confines Jesus to a historical time and place. And the fact of the matter is the historical Jesus is not just Jesus in Nazareth, Jesus in Jerusalem, but the, historic, but the, but the historical Jesus is also the Jesus in us. And so he is the Jesus of faith. And, and that if they're looking for him, he's right here. He's right here in our tabernacles, he's right here in our sacraments, he's right here in our church, and he's right here in our lives. And that if you want to trace, therefore, the historical Jesus, then you start with the birth in Bethlehem and you go up until the modern age. <clears throat> because he is still here, still with us, still alive, still working in the world, still sanctifying, still saving, still forgiving, still inviting, and still confirming all of us in the faith 
that he has given us in the very beginning and which he entrusted to be distributed to us through the ages by the apostles and their successors. And that's exactly what we are and uh, and what the church is and how the church functions. Obviously, as I said, human sinfulness taints the perfection of that, of that receptivity of the divine into ourselves. But it does not in any way take it away, and it does not in any way deny it. Our life is a process of, of unloading the sinfulness and the limitations and so forth as best we can through repentance and confession and so forth, and just simply growth as human persons. And yet we never or seldom do human beings reach absolute perfection, this side of the grave. And those that do, um, those that do seem to us to be the greatest of the saints. Um, When St. Francis is consumed by the body of Christ in the stigmata, it's a perfect union of divinity and humanity in, in the created nature, our created nature. And so it is, it is venerated then as kind of the, the proof positive of the human being's capacity to receive the, the fullness of the, the, the greatness of divinity within its own person and therefore become one with Christ. Then Jesus' prayer that all may be one as you, Father, in me, and I in you, and they in and, and me, it is, it is this constant intermingling of beings that is the story of the church. The intermingling of ourselves through the Spirit with Jesus who took on our flesh and whose flesh therefore we share. And then through that, his relationship in love for and from the Father. So that's basically the, the, the background of the... Uh, of the story of the ascension, and 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 I, you know, I, I can't help but remember one of the best, actually, translations of the of the Bible. I mean, I, I think is the Oxford Annotated, but it's not a Catholic translation. Um, and so there's, it's really interesting how the how the ascension is misinterpreted in that, because in the sixth chapter of John, when Jesus is talking about unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you will not have life in you. The non-Catholic scholars who did that put in a footnote and said, obviously Jesus is speaking only in a spiritual sense, for after the ascension he was no longer among us. Well, yes, he is among us. He's among us in Eucharist, he's among us in faith, he's among us in church and sacrament and so forth. So to, to, kind of, to kind of force the scripture to say what I wanted to say instead of what it really says is not basically necessarily a good idea. And I think that we have a lot of people to do that. That's actually one of the dangers of what we call our Bible studies. When it's all up to to private interpretation, we're going to move in those directions. We're going to move in those directions of of misunderstanding. And and they should not be confirmed. Um, I think every Bible study should, should begin with a prayer to the Holy Spirit, especially to remind us of what Jesus said, but don't presume to interpret things that, that, that are in any way um, obscure in our culture and our language. They're not obscure in themselves, but in our culture and our language they can become obscure. And for us to light and, 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 and try to interpret literally the obscure is not something very helpful to faith. 
So that's something that we have to be in many ways cautious of. But go back to the gospel now. And it says, Jesus said to his disciples, you see how it is written that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that in his name, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses to this. Jesus is going to remind them, first of all, that everything that they have experienced so far, he had told them about beforehand. We also know that there was a relative indifference to what he had to say beforehand. And that uh, we remember when he was telling them about his passion and death and crucifixion and so forth. And they instead were arguing among themselves as to who was going to have the, be- the places of honor or who was the greatest among them. Which shows that although he told them about it, they, were, they, were, uh, they did not grasp it. They did not understand it. Well, there is, there is that dimension also in, uh, there is that dimension also in, um, in, in, the, in the scriptures, and there is that dimension also in the contemporary church. The contemporary church is, is, is uh, proof positive of the existence of Christ among us, of Jesus among us, but it is also filled with hope and expectation and insight into the future much of which we do not understand. And we know how little we understand it when we start projecting into the future of what heaven might be like. And we can go all the way from the Islamic earthly material paradise um, to kind of disembodied spirits floating, floating through the skies. And all of those are projections of the human person about trying to see how in the world will the, how in the world will the will the will Jesus um, will Jesus's admonitions warnings to us his his things that he's telling us about the future how in the world will they work themselves out well we're in the same shape that the apostles were when he was telling them about it they couldn't they couldn't fathom him being betrayed him being murdered. Um, and, and even when they, they see the empty tomb, they say that they had not understood what it meant to rise from the dead. So, so yeah. So while we have the promises and while we have this, these insights into the future, we ourselves are not the ones who are going to, to construct the actual concrete realities that were promised. All of those promises are based on the fact of hope. And that's kind of what we look forward to. And that's really what we want, is to say, Jesus promised his disciples this is what would happen. It happened. He promises us eternal life. It will happen. We don't know how. We don't understand it completely. We can't envision it altogether. But nevertheless, we know that as sure as day follows the night, that that the, the promises of Jesus will be fulfilled in the lives of his people. And then he says, And now I am sending down to you what the Father has promised. And what the Father has promised, of course, is the Advocate, the Holy Spirit. So there is now a moment, a Pentecostal moment, in, before the, the story of the resurrection. And he says, So stay in the city until then, and then you will be clothed with the power from on high. And the clothing of the power from on high is, of course, the story of the Feast of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Ghost upon the apostles. And, uh, and in, in, in so doing that, um, 
then he is he is laying the groundwork again for this transition into the Acts of the Apostles. And if we believe, um, and it seems apparently so, that Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, then he is making a natural bridge, a natural slide into into what's going to happen. And he says, you know, that uh, stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. And he's already promised them the advocate, the one who will, who will come, the paraclete, and explain to them things. And then he took them out as far as the outskirts of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Now, as he blessed them, it says, he withdrew from them and was carried up to heaven. So that the incarnation... Now, as the visible companionship of Jesus of Nazareth with the apostles has come now to its proper end, and the Spirit now will come, bringing that same Jesus, but now into the lives of the church, symbolically through the sacraments. And, um, and when I say symbolically, I mean that in a very concrete sense of the word, the, the real um, the, the real uh, symbol, where the symbol contains what it actually is. We think of symbol as an abstraction from a concrete reality, but there was a time when symbol was thought of as simply a, a simply an unrecognizable presence of what actually was. And so the, it, the, the appearance carried with it the, uh, the interior meaning of the presence of that which was not able to be articulated and which was not able to be, to be clar- made clear through human language or human thought. And then he's taken up into heaven, all right? So Jesus now in this Augustinian thing that we saw in the beginning now resumes the right hand of the Father as he was in the days of the Old Testament. And yet, nevertheless, he remains present to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit is God also. And uh, the Spirit, being God, being divine, brings divinity into the church, into the sacraments, into our lives. And it says then that they worshipped him and then went back to Jerusalem full of joy. So they have now been relieved. They have seen the whole drama unfold, the tensions, the disappointment, all of those kinds of things. They've seen all that happen. And now they see it, they see it in its fulfillment. Jesus has come, he has performed his mission for the Father sent him. He returns to the Father. He returns to us in in the Spirit. And the Father and the Son now remain with us in the Spirit and become part of who we are, part of our lives. And then it says they worshipped him and then went back to Jerusalem full of joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. So they are now in the temple praising God. And this 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 is a symbolic thing as well. For the temple, the temple of the Old Testament now becomes the church of the New Testament. That they are in the temple praising God. Who is the God they praise? The God they praise is Jesus Christ, who has suffered, died, risen from the dead, ascended to the Father, returns to us in spirit, in, in the spirit, not just as a, as a ghost, but in the spirit, which is a concrete reality of the divine among us and then enters into our lives through the church, through the sacraments, and through grace. And though the cycle then becomes complete, 
And then that command in John's Gospel, as the Father has sent me, I send you, now becomes fulfilled. For now humanity takes on the mission of Jesus, not without him, with him within, but they are now the ones, they are the hands, they are the vehicles, they are the instruments now of the proclamation of the kingdom not, and the proclamation of the kingdom, of the coming of the kingdom, of the presence of the kingdom among us, of the presence of Jesus among us. And as so doing, then, they anchor, they anchor the infinite God, the eternal God, in the ordinary affairs and material realities of humanity. And they anchor it there until the end of time, when all things then will be recapitulated in Christ. And all things then will return, as Jesus has returned to the Father, all things will return to their source, having been completed, having been fulfilled, having received, therefore, the fullness of the gift of creation itself, which was always intended from the very first to be incorporated into the Son of God. The incarnation was intended from the beginning of creation. It was not a change in God and that was uh, initiated by human sinfulness. It was going to happen. How it happened, humanity had a role in, and humanity had a role in making it redemptive, and it had a role in making it necessary. Um, because of our sinfulness and our unwillingness to use our freedom for the greater honor and glory of God, all of those things, and and it, it was um, <clears throat> it, it was it was to be what it was to be, but we were to make with our role, our historical role, is we determined in some way, shape, or form the world into which He came. We did not make Him come. We determined what hid the receptacle of his coming would be. And what we had determined is it's very clear from the scriptures from the Old Testament, what we, what we prepared for him really was a world full of sinfulness and darkness, and that we therefore awaited with hope and with anticipation the coming of the Lord Jesus and the coming of our Savior. And all of this then has unfolded for us. And when we celebrate next Sunday, then, the Feast of Pentecost, we, we, we find, then, that that is, take, that, that is taking this gospel, bringing it to conclusion in the descent of the Holy Ghost upon the apostles. And where are the apostles? They are in Jerusalem, full of joy, and they are praising God, preparing, therefore, the way of the Spirit. So when we listen to this gospel and when we pray over this gospel and meditate on this gospel, realize that this is the whole story coming, coming to a transition, not a conclusion, a transition from the way that Jesus has dealt with us up until the day of the ascension and the way that he deals with us from the ascension now on to the end of time. And let us, like the apostles, become full of joy and continually praise God in the temples of our hearts, in our churches, in all of our lives. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So